the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Jesse Gestand. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gestand. And I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline. Yours truly, Jesse Gestand in the house. 505 on this wonderful, exquisite Monday evening, if I might also say so once again, uh, walking the um, the Fremont area here for the last hour and enjoying the weather, vitamin D, some rest in preparation to talk with you for the next two hours, thinking through what would be engaging, what would be informative, what would be provocative, what would be um, entertaining, if you will. You know, we have already advocated that God has created a world wherein there is both the science and the art side of all things made, so that not only does it work for us pragmatically, but it is also enjoyable. That can be the case for you and I on the Monday edition of Lifeline, as has been the case for so many years. So I do want to welcome you, welcome you, welcome you, welcome you to the Monday edition of Lifeline. Had a wonderful worship Sunday yesterday, love to tell you that. Um, completely fixed on the notion of six days labor, seventh day rest, and I pray that it would penetrate your soul and help you uh, return to the the rhythm of romance and the cycle of success that God grants his covenant people who recognize that God has called us to set aside some time to gather together collectively with his people to tell the world there's a day coming when all of God's elect will be separated from that world permanently. I don't know if you have ever thought this through, but I teach it frequently. Whenever the saints began the, begin the process of gathering together, you wake up Sunday morning after having uh, slept well Saturday night, and you begin the process of putting on your clothes and uh, preparing yourself uh, to be presentable as you leave the house and as you are headed to the car, perhaps your neighbors are uh, cleaning the yard, doing the garden, you know, whatever chores might um, befall them as they adopt the principle easy like Sunday morning, uh, as opposed to um, this is the day that the Lord has truly made, which is the context of Psalm 118, really it's the day of worship. As Although God has given us every day to worship him, there is that unique blessing that attends those who are committed to God's public glory as we flow out of our residence into the gathered assembly of the saints of the living God to worship God in the beauty of holiness and the expository preaching of God's word and the fellowship of the saints and the, uh, the uh, as it were, huddling up for the week's task. And so we do that week in and week out and week in and week out. And I hope that you have come to learn that this is your duty 
It's your privilege, yes, but it's certainly your duty to do as well. Um, so that Monday goes extremely well, extremely well. And then again, you get a chance to listen to PJ on Monday evening. If all things go well, I'm healthy and uh, in the Bay Area, and as I am today. So what do you want to talk about that, um, that might be productive today? So I'm going to set down a few things here by way of introduction, and maybe I can stir your thoughts on something I think is worthy of topic, and we can do some back and forth. You know I love to talk about theological things relative to where we are in our, our social lives, our, our domestic lives, our economic lives, particularly within the framework of a growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. For those of you who have been listening for a long time but have never called, I'd prioritize your call, one 367 one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Put that in your cell phone and your speed dial wherever you can, so you can call in and participate in this um, this potpourri, this gumbo that we call conversation for the two hours that God gives us on Mondays. Well, this Sunday coming up is Mother's Day. The first thing I want to say is that Mother's Day is on the way. And uh, whatever you're going to do, if mom is still around and uh, you have the blessing of being part of her life, let's honor our mothers this Sunday. Okay, or Saturday or Sunday evening or whatever is the most convenient day for you, because I know it gets really busy in many restaurants on Sunday after church, but it's still a good thing to do. And by the way, for all of the saints at Grace Yearly, we do this. I don't know if we really mentioned it yesterday in service, but we should have. Sunday morning, we do an open breakfast for all mothers, grandmothers, and, and, and everybody, really. It's, but it's in honor of the mothers. And uh, the, the men folk do all the cooking. So we'll be cooking from 8 o'clock, 8.30 until 10 o'clock. Um, in preparation for Sunday school and then final, finally for worship at 11. And so if you want to come out, it's going to be great weather, great seating, great food. Always is a lovely ambiance of men, women, and children just gathering together around the smell of pancakes and sausages and omelets and fried potatoes and other uh, cuisine that our serious chef brothers love to engage in just to bless our mothers once a year. So again, this Saturday, this Sunday, I'm letting the saints know we're at it. So come on out early and don't miss the breakfast because right around 10 o'clock it's going to start shutting down. So be glad to have you come out. If you don't have a church home, come worship with us this Sunday morning and hear a fabulous message about our Savior um, and uh, and his his grace to forgive us. This is where we are in our topical study on Sundays. We're talking about the forgiveness of sins from God's vantage point to us and how that it actually sets the framework for our liberation, our freedom, our growth, maturity in Christ, and all that entails what it means to truly be saved. You really do want to hear that series either online or in person. So we really do want to encourage you to be there. I was sitting at home last night after a long, wonderful day, as I have just mentioned, and I'm cruising on my man couch in my man cave, and my wife is passing back and forth as she does chores hither and yon. She quickly skates through the chaos called my man cave, uh, but she stopped in, and she made the observation um, that there is a policy that is passing in um, in Sacramento, and I have come uh, up to this point to discover that what she had stated was true. She said, do you know uh, they are developing uh, legislation that allows 
uh, vehicleist to be able to run over protesters when they block uh, highways in other areas of society. Now, I know, I know, immediately I'm thinking, okay, fake news. And then I did tell my wife, now, you know, stuff is never going to pass in Washington, D.C. You just can't run people over. But I woke up the next morning, so let me go back and look and see whether or not, indeed, this was fake news. Listen to this. Six states considered laws to make it legal to run over protesters this year. Six states have made it law. (laughs) It's called a day of reckoning has come for state lawmakers who propose protections for motorists who attack protesters from behind the wheels of their car. A tragedy at protests in Charlotte has cast new light on dangerous potential uh, p- p- potential of such laws. I know you guys remember during the Trump campaign, um, an advocate against Trump got killed by those who may have been more pro-Trump uh, at that time. Very, very bad thing. But uh, apparently, you guys, there's policy that's taking place. Here's what one uh, news item says. It says the author of a Texas bill to protect drivers who injure uh, demonstrators found himself the target of outrage on social media this weekend after the hit and run death of a young woman protesting white supremacists in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Reports by Lauren McGoffey says Representative Pat Fallon filed legislation to protect motorists who hit demonstrators. Now, this is a representative, a Republican, Pat Fallon, filed legislation to protect motorists who hit demonstrators, blocking traffic in a public right of way. If the driver exercises due care, explains McGoffey, after the tragedy in Charlottesville, Representative Fallon from Frisco, Texas, spoke with the Dallas Dallas Morning News and said his law would not protect a jackass like the driver of the vehicle in Charlottesville. Representative Fallon also posted this statement on Facebook, not exactly implying any regret for the proposal. Uh, to the hundreds of so alternative left folks that contacted us with outrage hate, here's what he says. What happened in Virginia was atrocious, and yes, it was murder. Any level-headed American would condemn it as I do. We need to take care to be consistent and condemn all racism uh, and hate. It's ugly. Uh, counterproductive and pointless. We can love those we disagree with. Unfortunately, the media seems to have preferential victims depending on their agenda. So apparently what he's saying is he wants to make legislation um, that was not expected to pass the House even before the violence over the weekend in Virginia. Texas isn't the only state to consider such legal protections for motorists encountering protests in the public right away. In January, another organization, Planetizing, uh, or Planetizing, picked up news of a similar bill proposed in North Dakota. And so they have apparently, you guys, several states... North Dakota, Tennessee, Florida, Rhode Island, North Carolina, Texas, North Carolina, approved by the state's House of Representatives, uh, passed beyond committee. The bill reads as follows. A person driving an automobile who is exercising due care and injures another person who is participating in a protest or demonstration and is blocking traffic in a public right-of-way, is immune from civil liability for the injury. That bill is expected to be picked up 
uh, in the North Carolina Senate this year or next, according to Bessel. There you go. My wife was right. She said they're pushing it. Now, I don't know what that means other than we're getting stupider and more stupider um, as the day goes by. I don't necessarily need you to come in, call in, and expand uh, on that kind of policy design. Uh, you can if you want to. But here's what I would have to say about that relative to why um, uh, legislators would even want to pose that kind of legislation. is just to continue the um, divide and conquer uh, mentality of politics. That's all. Legislation that would protect a vehiclist who would indeed bump an American citizen who is walking or standing in the way or protesting uh, on public property. Um, There should not even be the slightest support, advocacy of such things. One, you know, as I know, at this very moment in the world in which we live, we are not stable people. Our society is not stable. We're, we're, uh, we are losing it daily, are we not? Here you are driving down the road. Let's, let's say you're headed from uh, Fremont to Oakland um, to go to Whole Foods store or um, some other store, okay? And as you're making your way to the highway, someone is in front of you or someone's on the side of you or someone's in back of you, and inevitably there's an encounter, is there not? Either you're going too slow or you're going too fast or whatever the case may be, and people are blowing their horns. People are giving you the finger. People are doing all sorts of things to um, indicate that they are perturbed, if you will, by your very presence on the road. In other words, it's very aggressive out there, as is the case in many states like um, New York and other places, Washington, D.C., where it can be fairly challenging to drive down the road. Well, the Bay Area is becoming just like that as well. The uh, traffic on the roads is horrendous virtually in every vein of the Bay Area. And then people, again, are not being polite. They're not being thoughtful. and they're, They're not being kind. I think what you see going on with this kind of policy legislation from the uh, very vacuous thinking of uh, our representatives is really indicative of, again, a growing hollowness of morality on the part of human beings and a kind of insane narcissism that is bleeding the distinguishing lines between our humanity and our metal or, if you will, our AI. Think about it for a moment. You know, you and I have already been enamored by Transformers, have we not? And so we have seen cars uh, transform into um, anthropomorphic entities, right? Like human beings, right? Is this not the same thing, ladies and gentlemen? Do not people uh, leave their homes in a kind of a, a coy or, or a passive demeanor? only to jump in their cars and become these testosterone-driven maniac people who think somehow they are so powerful that they can actually uh, injure you or harm you, and they begin to become unreasonable and enraged and to act out because they are surrounded by AI, artificial intelligence, um, a vehicle that has the ability to not only uh, give them a, 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 a sense and feel of, uh, of, of worship within that vehicle, a kind of sanctuary, but then it's able to actually drive at hundreds of miles per hour, uh, burn rubber, make noise, and uh, scare people. 
I think that's a pretty powerful formula if you don't if you don't uh, if, if you don't mind. I think people can become if they think that they have a right to express themselves through their vehicles, as is the case virtually every day. Uh, we're going to see more of people running over people with cars and threatening people with their cars and bumping people with their cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So there I go with that little basic uh, sort of um, petty news. But I say that only because over the years that I've been behind this mic, I have stated about things, uh, spoken about things that have not really become front and center for a year or two. And maybe even longer. And then all of a sudden, there it is. So let's see if this one will pop up and be the case as well. So before the break, I'm going to read a quote from uh, Mr. J.C. Riles to stir our thoughts. And then when I come back, I'm going to call your attention to something else that I think is really important as well. And uh, we'll see if we can stir up the phone lines for some legitimate dialogue and conversation around something a little bit more biblically centered, although it still has some public social issue elements that I want to um, uh, I want to hear from you on. Mr. Riles says concerning what I am calling the Christian soldier, what the Christian soldier sees every believer is called to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Every believer is called to put on the whole armor of God that he might stand against the wiles of the devil, right? You and I are called to be soldiers for so many reasons. What makes the believer fight? What does he see that drives him to fight for the cause of his master? Here's what Mr. Ryle says. I quote, he sees by faith an unseen savior who loved him, gave himself for him, paid his debt for him, bore his sin, carried his transgressions, rose again for him, and appears in heaven for him as his advocate at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus and clings to him. Seeing this Savior and trusting in him, he feels peace and hope and willingly does battle against the foes of his soul. He sees his own many sins his own weak heart, a tempting world, a busy devil. And if he looked only at them, he might well despair. But he sees also a mighty Savior, an interceding Savior, a sympathizing Savior, his blood, his righteousness, his everlasting priesthood. He believes that all this is his own. He sees Jesus, and he casts his whole weight on him. Seeing him, he cheerfully fights on with a full confidence that he will prove more than conquerors through him that loved him. Now, is that not good insight into the walk of faith for the soldier of God daily? What is the key to us pressing forward? We see Jesus. You're listening to the Monday edition of Lifeline, your host, Jesse Giston. I'm going to take a break, and then when I come back, I want to talk to you about a little shift going on in our Gen Xers and Gen Zers around the gospel. And I'll take your phone calls at one 367 one Glad to be with you on this Monday edition of Lifeline. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. All right, we're back. The time five thirty one on the Monday edition of Lifeline. The lines are all open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. If you want to call in, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. 
You're listening to Jesse Gistan in the house. Glad to be with you. I want to give kudos to a young lady who wrote an article that I thought would be provocative in the in the good sense. We live in such a um, profoundly politicized um, era, um, politicized world. It could be true, truly said of that in, in the days of our Savior, in the days of uh, the Jews prior to the coming of Christ. But certainly today. Politics is such a massive sort of prism and framework by which people take on personal identity. And uh, we are very clear that, well, the generation uh, in which I grew up um, being baby boomers, uh, we were kind of in a melee of confusion so that there were no real um, marching orders by which we could identify ourselves with a cause and uh, and then move out into some kind of political activism. But it's apparent that young people today, and particularly young people who have grown up in the church, are moving in directions that are somewhat alarming. This young lady whose name is Jacqueline Crow has something to say about it. I just want to want you to hear it. I do have some um, questions about her topic that I'd love to try to stimulate some dialogue with you about and just see where you are. Now, the reason I am going to read this is because you will have a son or a daughter. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, and no um, time short, if not already today, who will actually be trending in this direction? And how will you manage that? How will you talk to them? How will you engage them when they want to jump off the cliff into the mass of the multitude and get involved into activism? Here's what she says, and think this through with me, um, how insightful she became about her own life. Uh, Jacqueline Crow says, I quote, in junior high, I became friends with a social justice warrior. She wasn't a Christian, but she had an extravagant and sincere concern for people and was driven to eradicate suffering and bring relief. She was the first teenager I met who was actively involved in collecting food for the homeless, donating her hair to cancer research attending rallies for refugees, and raising awareness for human trafficking, child soldiers, and global famine. She woke me up to some real, uh, to some of these real issues for the first time. And that term, some of you guys might know, being woke, 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 woke. That's another sort of uh, catchphrase in Christian lingo today about being uh, socially aware and socially involved. It goes on, but her love for justice wasn't rooted in spiritual realities. It was intertwined with simple idealisms and a search for self-fulfillment in temporary humanitarian relief. More than anyone else I know, she lives out the dominant and defining belief of Generation Z. We had Generation X, now Y, now Z. Social justice is our God. Social justice is our God, is uh, what Jacqueline is saying. And this is where I want you to begin to uh, focus and, and ask the question. Generation Z and justice is no stereotype. The statistics show that my generation is obsessed with justice. Forbes reports that Generation Z is passionate about equality and justice of every kind. They fight for themselves, their friends, their classmates, and others they see treated unfairly, whether due to issues of gender, sexuality, race, pay, or environmentalism. 
A study from Fast Company revealed that 76% of uh, Generation Z is concerned about human effect on the planet and believe they can operate as a change agent. In a globally connected world, teens and 20-somethings take the advantage of the unlimited opportunities for activism on the web. We're organizing school walkouts, marching for equality, and doing TED Talks on child marriage and poverty. These days, we're bigger fans of Malala Yousafzai than Miley Cyrus. I guess this is an activist female, too. Having grown up, she says, in the age of authenticity, we've been taught that we should be directed by nothing outside of us, but only by what we find meaningful within us. Denying external authority, even divine action, to follow the new purpose of what speaks to me. As we struggle desperately to find meaning in this postmodern culture, the hip and heartwarming pursuit of social justice has indeed spoken to us. But young Christians are especially passionate about justice, and not merely because of its coolness factor. Though we're undeniably influenced by our culture's dogma, we see God's clear command to pursue justice for the poor, refugees, the homeless, the marginalized, minorities, the unborn, and the vulnerable. Filled with empathy and energy, we're ready to rise up and help. Imbalanced justice, that is, this is what um, the young lady is saying, Mrs. Crow is saying, imbalanced justice. Generation Z Christians, however, have a problem. We're imbalanced. You think so? We often view the mission of Christianity as a seesaw. On one side is doctrine-driven evangelism. On the other is a practical pursuit of earthly justice. We say or imply that you can be either a Christian who's focused on justice or a Christian whose focus is on gospel proclamation. Which are you? People are policies, social needs or spiritual needs, temporal or eternal. When forced to plant flags, younger Christians tend to choose the former, while older Christians the latter. Many young Christians have tilted towards justice in a way that slowly slides away from the gospel. Did you get that? Their focus has dangerously drifted from gospel-centered to humanitarian-centered. Many in my generation aren't only emphasizing justice over evangelism, they are sacrificing the truth at the altar of humanity. In this book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller writes about young evangelicals who have expanded their mission to include social justice along with evangelism. He observes many of them have not only turned away from older forms of ministry, but also from traditional evangelical doctrines of Jesus' substitutionary atonement and of justification by faith alone, which are seen as too individualistic. In other words, they no longer hold to a personal salvific paradigm. This is all about a social salvation. This is not new, ladies and gentlemen. This is old. Many in my generation aren't only emphasizing justice over evangelism. They're sacrificing truth on the altar of humanity. They have become consumed by social needs, confused about the mission of the gospel. The gospel is big enough, however, for justice. This is what Lori is trying to say. The fundamental problem is that we've created a false dichotomy. When you pit justice 
and gospel against each other, you miss the point of the Bible and devalue God's heart for both. Justice fits squarely in the framework of biblical Christianity. It flows fiercely out of the gospel as a practical implication of loving God. Our God is a God of justice. He cares for the needy. He provides for the poor. He fights for the oppressed. He hates abuse, racism, human trafficking, and he expects his people to do the same as well. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. You guys have heard these before. I'm almost done with the article, and I definitely want to hear your comments about this. Let's talk about this a little bit. She goes on to say, finally, yet if we want to live out justice the way God commands and celebrates, we must prioritize the gospel. Did you get that? If we truly want to see human flourishing and reduce global suffering, we need to deal with the biggest problem humanity faces, and that is what? Sin and death. We need a robust and holistic view of justice, and the gospel equips us with that. Christians throughout history, like William Wilberforce, Hannah Moore, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, have been advocates for justice, and it was their force of the gospel that fueled their pursuit of justice. This is just a name, just a few of many. When you pit justice and gospel against each other, you miss the point of the Bible and devalue God's heart for both. Walking humbly with your God fuels doing justice. If we honestly recognize and acknowledge both our weakness and God's greatness, we'll want to provide hope and help to others. We'll want to love our neighbors, and loving our neighbors means meeting their physical needs while recognizing that their most important need is decidedly spiritual. They're dead and in need of life. We need justice operated out of gospel love. That's what Jesus did. He provided physically for poor, for the poor while telling them about the spiritual riches they could have in him. He drew water for the thirsty and told them about the living water that could eternally satisfy. He served food to the hungry and preached about the bread of life. He cared about children and orphans and offered the opportunity to be God's children. Jesus didn't ignore people's physical suffering, but he prioritized their eternal suffering. It wasn't an either or. There was no false dichotomy. It was both and. And as John Piper has said, Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. That's what Jesus did. He cared for suffering. And his radical love for people led to action. If Generation Z Christians really want to change the world, we need to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and serve like Jesus. And if we want to make a difference for eternity, then we too want to take action to prioritize the gospel as we pursue justice. Jacqueline Quo is the author of This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years. I kind of like what she had to say. And I trust that you heard and were patient with me through that particular article. And uh, I I really do want to hear from you. So here is some of the questions that I'm raising. And let's talk about this for the next 30 minutes before I go to break. Three lines open, by the way. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Here's how I'm gonna pose it. You can talk about the article, you can talk about your children, you can talk about yourself, you can talk about our churches that drift down the path of socialism, abandoning the gospel, or talk about our churches that are so deeply steeped in gospel issues, so they say, that we don't have any evidence of being uh concerned about um 
philanthropic and uh, uh, outreach efforts to help uh, the um, afflicted and poor and things of that nature. You can talk about that. one 888 This is the tension we live in. But here's the question. If God told you to pick a cause and to pour yourself into it, after reading your Bible carefully twice over, and after being clear on true discipleship, and after sufficiently understanding the gospel of God's free sovereign grace, what cause would you take up for God's kingdom? I'm going to say it again, then I'm going to take a break, and then I'm going to take your phone calls, one 888 So you know you can't be a Christian sitting on your butt and really expect God to be happy with you. All right, here we go. If God told you to pick a cause and pour yourself into it, after reading your Bible carefully twice, after being clear on true discipleship, and after sufficiently understanding the gospel of God's free grace in Christ, what cause would you take up for God's kingdom? What what social, what political, what secular cause would you take up for the cause of the kingdom? See, this is the question your children will ask you when all they see you doing is basically talking, you or me. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I've got three lines open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Gonna take a break. I'll be right back on the Monday edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. All right, we're back. Five fifty on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I've got two lines open. Give me a call. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Two lines open. One triple eight. Three six seven five three two nine. Taking your questions, taking your observations, taking your um, <clears throat> your contribution to this program. So two lines are open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Love to hear from you. As I have posed the question to you, if God told you to pick a cause and to pour yourself into it, after reading your Bible um, carefully uh, twice over. And after being clear on true discipleship, which I think is a challenge for Christians today, and after sufficiently understanding the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, what cause would you take up for God's kingdom? See, remember when Christ said in Matthew 28, 19, all power has been given unto me of my father in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go ye into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Do you know that he meant for you and I to simply go take up a cause, um, a life career, um, um, a goal, a job, a family, et cetera, et cetera, and in that context, be ready to preach the gospel? Did you know that? Did you know that he sent the disciples out initially as um, apostles with a message, but it was in the context of the culture and its expressions diversity, its conflicts, its problems, that the gospel is to be poured into it. And that's really what um, uh, he meant by go. He didn't give any specific frame or design. He simply said in going, because that's kind of a participle, not even an imperative verb. In going, just make sure you preach the gospel. And what's been going on in our culture 
is that the gospel has been turned upside down on its head because we get so political. And as a consequence, we we can't find a way to utilize biblical truth as an um, objective criterion by which to insert into people's politics a moral ethical framework and a priority of need for spiritual things. And the next thing we know, we're just simply fighting about political issues. And that's what's going on with our Gen Zers, if um, Lori is correct, and I think she is, because that was what was going on with uh, uh, not only millennials, but um, baby boomers as well. Um, again, we have the history of a failure to be able to hold intention, both the gospel and practical um service to our fellow man. I think you would agree with that. Two lines open, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. If God told you to pick a cause and pour yourself into it, after that, he told you to read your Bible twice over very carefully, and after being clear on biblical discipleship, what it means to be a true disciple, and after being sufficiently um, aware of and understanding the gospel of his grace, what cause would you take up for God's kingdoms? What we want to kind of close this hour out on and talk about. Let me go to line number two and talk with Dave in Oakland. Dave, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can. What's your questions, thoughts, or comments, sir? Well, first of all, I just want to say um, God is good uh, because I have been questioning this for a while. For you to be talking about it, it's just, man, the Holy Spirit is it's always moving. Amen. So I just want to say thank you for having that uh, yeah, discussion. Yeah. Um, so I know that our theme uh, for this year is uh, honoring all men. Sure. Um, as God has called us to do. And I wanted to ask you that how do we go about honoring um, all men uh, living in a system of white supremacy in America uh-huh. um, when we want to be uh, honoring, but we also want to have justice, mm-hmm. you know, that our God is a God of justice right. as well as love. Right. And we know that we have brothers that may uh, be in, in the faith with us, they, but inside the church, but outside the churches, their actions uh, speak other things. And we know that we can't, um, how do you say, we can't discriminate against them uh, because we know really that racism is a byproduct of the devil. We know that he ultimately is the enemy. Yeah. He uses racism to divide us and keep us separated. But at the same time, uh, as the um, people of color in this, the country, we're always called to forgiveness of our, you know, our oppressors. Mm-hmm. But how do you how do you still manage oppression when uh, and and seek for justice at the same time? Because we're all supposed to be the ones that be, you know, forgiving and, and, and you know. Uh, forgetting, you know, you know, the discrimin- discriminatory practices that goes on where, you know, police can kill black men with impunity, have no, you know, no consequences in this country, but we're supposed to act like nothing is, nothing is wrong. And, and it's so funny that you brought, you know, fighting for justice, but still bringing the gospel. We know we want to first be the people that come with the gospel to, um, you know, to get people, because ultimately, People saying this, what I mean, uh, souls would matter, and we know that there's a real hell, and we know that 
uh, this life is just temporary. So in a way, a lot of the things that go on on this earth is just, uh, it really doesn't matter. It matters, but only to the point where are you safe first? Because if you if not even say we can't even we can't even start having a discussion because that's the thing that matters because we know we only got so so long here. Right. So how do you do that while manning? You know, how do you bring gospel to people but still fight for justice while uh, you know while speaking out against you know a system that is made uh, a system of white supremacy but still honoring our brothers because we know that all our all the men is created in the image of God, you know? Right. So, so do me a favor and cut your, cut your radio down. Okay, I'll turn my phone down. Your phone, your radio, whatever that is, is a, a weird voice that sounds like me in the background coming back up. And I'm, I am drinking something, but it's not anything that would create <laughs> echoes in my head. <laughs> I've got I'm some sorry. I've I got didn't. some beet juice with some ginger, some apples and some celery. That shouldn't be getting me high. So uh it's all good. Right. So what I'm gonna right. do is reframe your lengthy question because as I was listening to it, Dave, there are a number of things there that I probably would um take issue with in terms of how to formulate a really a fairly simple but complex issue. How do we address social issues with a gospel framework um, uh, in a, in a, in a, in a context in which frequently um, the most vigorous aspects of what concerns people is a social issue. And particularly you're speaking about what is very much um, a hotbed issue and I don't bring this up a lot at all in terms of the specifics and the particular cases that are going on around uh, around the world or in America, and certainly even here in the Bay Area. And I'm sure you're aware of a number of the cases of black men being killed here in the Bay Area. Uh, recently up in Sacramento, a big old uh, brouhaha has been going on about a young man, young man whose last name is Clark that was killed in his own backyard by police officers. And so we we seem to constantly be unearthing. Um, the, uh, the, the, the trending and problematic reality of police officers ex- exceeding the boundaries of their power when it comes to African-Americans or, or men of color. You know that I know that it's not even a controversial issue. Anyone who would want to make it controversial and not recognize that this is happening has either stuck their head in the sand and, and have not actually looked at the evidence or they just want to be controversial. So we won't take that kind of caller or um, person to engage dialogue in. But here's what I would say to you, and this is your your question, Dave, is, is the precise kind of social justice issue that I would take up. The other ones are going to be issues of gender. The other ones are going to be issues of um, of race. Um, as well, the others are going to be, um, you know, issues of of power because those are the things that really dominate our world: power, race, gender, sexuality, etc. They all are things that we have to struggle and work through. Particularly if you're um, a father, as are you, um, and and myself as well. With regards to how we address um, our brothers and our sisters, because they women are involved in this as well. You want to be careful to follow a set of principles. First and foremost, you have to believe in the individual, per capita individual. That is, whenever you talk to one person, do not tag them with the group as if 
whatever the group is doing, they're doing. Whatever the group is believing, they're believing. Yes. That would that would ca- cause you to be exercising a kind of reverse discrimination. Um, it would yes. it would it would deny their own autonomy. It would deny their own responsibility. Uh, in terms of them being able to give you an answer specifically in detail as to how they view this whole experience. So individually, we got to get to know a person, individually understand where they're coming from, individually recognize their uh, intrinsic conflict struggle, et cetera, with the matter. Uh, And if they are in a safe space to want to talk about something as inflammatory and as volatile as race, particularly if you're talking about a white brother, um, Depending on who they are, Dave, they can be an older person who is so fixed in their ways that there really is no conversation to be had with them around how to properly interpret what is going on in the past all the way up to the present. And and with that, because you want to be honorable to men, you don't you don't get to just force your opinion on them. Uh, as the proverb says, um, you are to go from the presence of an individual when you, when you perceive that there is not in them the lips of knowledge. If they don't really want to have a rational conversation that's based on reason and logic and facts around that particular topic, uh, then you don't want to engage in, uh, again, wrestling with them. But once you come across people that you do recognize who are willing to discuss the matter, honor them by respecting their individuality, their um, autonomy, their responsibility to be able to parse between the matters and distinguish what happened on what happened historically and what may have occurred even recently and their own sentiments about it. When you do that, you are honoring them. And in when you honor them, you will be able to disengage the sort of default mechanism that some people take up that would simply say, hey, don't don't judge me, um, because we really do often do that. In the larger narrative of um, black-white dialogue within the Christian world, even up to this very moment, Dave, there are some massive what we would call heavy hitter uh, preachers that are uh, going back and forth with each other on these matters. Uh, And some of it gets pretty embarrassing and some of it gets pretty nasty relative to the facts. And so I would say for us, what we would want to do is honor all men in that we would want to know if they are informed enough or if they are prepared to be informed enough to have the conversation so that we can make sure that we are really all true disciples and having the kind of respect for one another that can make the gospel front and center in our walk with each other. But we would not be honoring them if we didn't pursue that conversation out of fear um, or out of retribution or out of some other kind of cowardice uh, motif, we would definitely want to have that conversation because if they care about you or care about me, they would care about what I consider an important aspect of my community. And so this is how we begin to work on how to resolve injustices within the social ranks of our society. Um, And this would be true on both sides, Dave. Um, I don't think African-Americans are always equipped to have the conversation. I certainly don't think a lot of our white brothers are equipped to have the conversation. For black people, it's, um, it's emotional. For white people, it's emotional. And so without a very objective set of criterion by which to talk about the past and the present, Um, You want to be honorable enough to make sure that you are prepared to respect that person before you engage in that dialogue. And then when once you engage in that dialogue, Dave, be clear on your facts um, and be clear on where you're trying to go 
and not just have the conversation because at the core of your being, um, you're frustrated by what appears to be a continuation of injustice on the part of law enforcement relative to um, African-Americans. Um, does that help? Yes, it does, Esther. I thank you for taking your time to expound that to me. Yeah, and, and don't stop being concerned about it because it's going to pop its ugly head up again. And it's something that we want to be able to do what Second Peter 3.15 tells us to do. I believe it's Second Peter 3.15. And that is to be ready to give an answer to every man of the hope of the calling which is within us with meekness um, and uh, and a kind of grace and humility that allows us to say, I, I think I am aware of the facts and here's what my convictions are about it. And this is not personal, but uh, what we need to talk about this where we can if we're going to advance our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is absolutely essential to overcoming the fear that impedes our ability to become closer brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Thank you for the call. I'm going to take a break. I've got two lines open. One, triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine. I'd love to hear from you on my proposal. If God told you to take up a cause and to pour yourself into it after reading your Bible carefully twice and after being clear on what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus and after being clear on understanding what the gospel of his free sovereign grace is, what would be the cause that you would take up for the kingdom? I've got two lines open, one 888 I'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.